I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, where Paul writes, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedience. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what He has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your love and grace and for this opportunity now to study your word together. And as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. There are some words that are so familiar to us that it's hard at times to be able to hear them fresh again, to be able to think about them again. Last week, as we were looking at the scripture of the transfiguration, I shared with you that Dr. Fred Craddock shared that there are some scriptures that we are so familiar with that it makes it difficult for us to hear again a fresh word from God. So in the scripture and in this season, we use words like love, salvation, grace. These are familiar words that we've used so many times before and they can sometimes lose their meaning for us. But grace, it's a powerful, powerful word. This whole season of Lent is about God's amazing, incredible grace that He has offered to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. I guess it's one of the reasons the song, Amazing Grace, is so special to many of us. When we are planning funeral services or special services and we ask, what is your favorite song? What would a song that you'd like to hear? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me is, is one of the songs that you'll so often hear. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at God's amazing grace, looking at prevenient grace, that grace that goes before us, convicting grace, 
justifying, saving grace, and sanctifying grace, the grace that makes us holy. And then the means of grace, that which we use, the tools and the gifts that God has given to us to use to help us grow in our faith. In this scripture, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And in this letter, he says something very plain in chapter 2, verse 1. He says to the church, you were dead. Wow, I mean, just let those words sink in for a moment. It's how did we get in this mess? And, and why did Jesus have to die for us? Why are we walking toward a cross? What was really going on? And Paul just lays it on the line. Well, here's the deal. You were dead. You were not wounded, not broken, not somehow flawed. You were dead, lifeless, through your trespasses and your sins. Now, John Wesley believed that we should keep those two separated out and hear the distinction. Trespasses are those willful steps away from who God is calling us to be. Sin is any time we do something outside of the will of God. You were dead. Your sin, your trespasses, they have broken us. They have literally taken our lives. You were helpless. Nothing else that you can do. Our sin, our brokenness reminds us too of original sin. When you go back in Genesis and you see where God created chapters one and two, all was good. Matter of fact, it was very good. Chapter three, sin enters the world and the temptation that comes around is, ah, you won't die. God just knows you'll be like him. And Niebuhr describes original sin as our self-interest, that that was the temptation, is to put ourselves first. And as a result, we have a tendency to constantly be figuring out how we can elevate ourselves over everything else. The Wesleys, John Wesley and his brother Charles, who wrote many of the hymns, referred to original sin as our bent towards sinning, that because of our sinful brokenness, that which we inherited now, it is a nature that inclines us to sin, inclines us to put ourselves first above God and everyone else. One of the most beautiful songs that Charles Wesley wrote was the song, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. And in that song, which is a song about God's amazing grace and the order of salvation, the way of salvation. There's a line that says, take away our bent towards sinning. Some interpret the song, take away our love towards sinning. There's something inside of us now that leads us to rebel and turn away from God. You know, the, the two commandments, the two great commandments that Jesus gives to us or love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Coming clearly from the Old Testament, even the Ten Commandments are broken into the scriptures of loving God and loving your neighbor. It sounds so simple, but it bumps up against our self-interest. When I'm loving God, do I love God more than I love me? 
when I love my neighbor, can I love someone else more than I love me? And because of our sinful nature and our rebellion then against God, well, we were so lost that Paul says we were actually dead. You were dead. And therefore, there was nothing at all that you could do, nothing that I could do, nothing that any of us could do to restore our deadness, to bring life back to us again. We were helpless. We were done. We were done. Reminds me of the story of the prodigal son that you see in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. You might remember the story of the younger son comes up to his father, says, give me everything that's mine. I'm out of here. I mean, think about it, the sinful nature there, that self-interest. Give me everything that belongs to me and I'm done. And he goes and turns his back on his family. He turns his back on his faith. He turns his back on everything. He was lost and broken. We learned that he was really dead. When he's at rock bottom and he realizes I'm going to go home and just try to be a servant. When he's coming home back to his father, the father runs with compassion and embraces him. But I love what the father says when he's embraced his son. He goes, this son of mine, he was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. That's the story of all of us. We were dead in our sin. We were lost. And there was nothing we could do to recover our lostness or our deadness. Only God could do something, which is why I love verse 4 in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, but God... There's a couple of scriptures that begins, but God. And it's one of my favorite lines that when we look at our sinfulness, our brokenness, our lostness, our deadness because of our sin and shame, but God. There's still God and God did something about it. God who is rich in mercy. Now, the, the Greek word there for mercy implies compassion. But God who was rich in mercy, God who was rich in compassion, God who looked at us, looked at you and was moved. A God who has emotions, a God who has feelings, a God who loves you enough that when he saw the state you were in, the state that I was in, God was moved with compassion, with mercy, with pity to the point that God did something. Paul says he was rich in mercy and out of the great love that he had for us. That Greek word for love, again, is agape. Agape means an unconditional love. It's an unmerited love. It's an unearned love. It's a sacrificial love that will always put the other first. And that's what Paul says is that, that we were dead, but God. 
God was rich in compassion and mercy and this amazing, great, unconditional, sacrificial love that he had for us, he did something. He made us alive, Paul says. I'm, I'm reminded in John chapter 11, the story of Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Lazarus had died. He had been buried now for four days. That's important. It was believed that the spirit would hover for about three days over the body. Lazarus had been dead for four. It was a way of saying he was good and dead. You were dead, Paul says. And Lazarus was dead and then the tomb. And even though he was dead and buried, Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And that which is dead comes back to life again. Paul says that we were dead in our sin and trespass, but God called out to us and makes us alive together. By grace, we have been saved. By God's amazing grace, this love in action, I think the definition that I love for grace is it's love in action. It's love that doesn't simply say, I have emotions, but it's emotions with feet on it. It's emotions that does something, that moves. And God is moved. He has compassion and love, and He does something. He calls us forth by His grace. God acted when we could not act on our own. God is the one, when we were dead, Paul says, the one who acts and then brings us life and grace. Well, this creates a little bit of a challenge that the church has struggled with over the years, and that is, well, if something was totally dead, then how in the world can it respond? And so you get two different Johns, who deal with this, John Calvin and John Wesley. And, and it's interesting to kind of watch how they struggle with this scripture of if something was absolutely dead, then there's no ability to choose, no ability to react. How does this work? Now John Calvin believed that since we were dead, that only God could act. But then the question becomes, but yet when we look around in our world today, obviously not everyone becomes a Christian. Not everyone begins to follow God and accepts Jesus Christ. And, and so if we were dead and only God could do the action, that made it appear, and, and Calvin was kind of stuck going, well, then God must choose to save some, but not everyone. You can look it up. It's known as the tulip. It's where we look through and see what, is, what does this mean? Well, if there's total depravity, the tea and the tulip, total deadness, total lostness, total brokenness as the image of God, the image of God is obliterated in us, then, then all of a sudden Calvin realizes that, well, if, if there's total depravity, then there had to be some sense of unconditional election that God had to choose some people, but they couldn't respond to it. God chose them. They didn't have the ability because they were dead to choose. So God chooses. That means that there would be what's called limited atonement. That's the L in the tulip, that Jesus didn't die on the cross 
for the world, he died on the cross for the church. He died on the cross for those who were saved. And because we were dead and God has chosen and Jesus died for the church, that meant grace was irresistible. That's the I in the tulip. Irresistible grace, you couldn't reject it. So if you've been chosen, you're chosen. Nothing you can do. And then the P is the perseverance of the saints, that those then will remain faithful to the end. John Wesley wrestled with that. The other John. John Wesley was struggling going, wait a minute, that just, it doesn't line up with some of the other scriptures. I thought Jesus died for the whole world. As a matter of fact, one of John Wesley's favorite scriptures is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9. And it's the scripture says that, that Jesus is the true light which enlightens everyone. In other words, the light of Christ shines on everyone and exposes all of us, that this light is for everyone. John 3, 16, you might remember that scripture where God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Not some, but everyone who believes. John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. All people. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you, all of you, to repentance? Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. All of us. 1 John 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 which is talking about the delayed return of Christ, says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some of you think of slowness, but is patient with you. Why? Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So we were dead. Paul said in Ephesians, we were dead. Wesley would agree with John Calvin. We were absolutely dead in our sin and our brokenness. So how is it then that, that we can even respond to God? And John Wesley believed in what was called prevenient grace. Believes the scripture, and I agree, is supportive throughout that, that God acts and gives us grace that goes before us. Prevenient, pre, before, venient, awareness. Before we're even aware of it, before we even know what's going on, God offers us grace. And what he means by that is we were dead, but God gives us the ability to hear his call to us. God gives us the ability to hear his offer of repentance, his offer of Grace. John Wesley 
often referred to grace and the forms of grace that we're looking at like a house. He said, well, prevenient grace is like the porch of a house. That's where you approach. That's where the welcome mat is. That's the draw to become part of whatever's going on, the porch. The door then is justifying or saving grace. That's how we become part of the family of Christ. And then once we come inside to the room, well, that's the sanctifying grace. That's where we are now part of the kingdom and we're growing in relationship. Prevenient grace, well, that's the porch that's preparing us. And Wesley firmly believed that God's grace, this prevenient grace, is offered to all of us that even though we were helpless, God's light, the light of the world, shines on all of us, and God's grace gives all of us the ability to choose once again to receive Him as Savior and Lord. But it's God's action. Nancy and I have been married now for 36 years. Got married when we were 20 years old. We had dated four years before that. So we, we started dating when we were 16. We were in high school together. And sometimes people will go, well, how did you guys meet? When were you dating? And we tell the story. And my version of the story is that she chased me for year after year until I finally gave in and relented and that's how the relationship started. Now, obviously, she has a different version of the story. But the question is, who initiated the relationship? Who started the relationship? How did it begin? Now, for us in our marriage, it's kind of a joke. It's something that we laugh about. But in our faith, it's vital to understand who the pursuer is. And what that means is Paul's reminding us we were dead. The one who chose to pursue us was God himself. The one who initiated the relationship is God. That God looked at us, as Paul said, and in his rich mercy felt moved compassion with this incredible love for you and this incredible love for me, he did something. And when love does something, we call that grace. And prevenient grace is God loving you enough even while you are yet a sinner, as Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8, that God proves his love for us and that even while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. All grace is prevenient grace. All grace is God working first because we were dead in our sin and our brokenness. But prevenient grace is God loving you and doing something before you could ever love God back. Catch that. Prevenient grace is God loving you enough to do something for you, grace, before you could ever choose to love Him back? In Genesis, we were created with free will. God wanted us to be able to choose His grace. What He does 
through Jesus Christ and prevenient grace is not remove our free will to where we're saved or not because God chose. That would take away our humanness. Prevenient grace is God loving us enough to give us the ability to hear Him call us to His love. Just like Lazarus in the tomb was dead, but by grace he could hear the call of Jesus to come forth. We were dead in our sin, but God loved us enough through provenient grace to let us hear his voice, calling us to come to him as his children and to receive his mercy and his love Prevenient grace. It is a gift from God. No wonder John says in 1 John 4, 9, we love because He first loved us. God's grace, always prevenient. This cross, this grace, this forgiveness and everlasting life, it was offered to you before you even knew you needed it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Amen.